Welcome back to Season 12 of The Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based out of the University of Virginia, bringing you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives and international politics. We're sponsored by the UVA International Relations Organization. I'm your host, AJ Lorienti. Today, we'll be discussing ranked choice voting, its current relevance to the American political system, and its potential as a future alternative. To learn more about this topic, I'm sitting down with Reese Kaplan, a fourth year Econ and Foreign Affairs major, Andrew Chand, a second year Intended Public Policy and Econ major, and Leslie Lan, a first year Intended Foreign Affairs major. How are y'all doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well as well. Good, happy to be here. Awesome, of course. So let's start with a bit of context. Could you provide our listeners with an overview of public opinion on the current American political system? Well, 65% of Americans always or often feel exhausted when thinking about American politics. Another 63% of Americans are consistently unsatisfied with their options for candidates. And a meager 27% of Americans say that our political system functions extremely or somewhat well. Elections are more often than not contests between the lesser of two evils, with Americans being confined to just two choices. Of course, there are countless individual issues currently in need of solving, but what about the political system that determines which leaders will address all of these issues? Evidently, the system seems to be undesirable, to put it mildly, and one possible systemic remedy for these underlying ills is ranked choice voting, or RCV. So we're here to talk about RCV, but before we dive into the issue, can you talk about this episode's guests? Um, for this episode, we interviewed two guests. First, we had J. Miles Coleman, a member of the UVA Center for Politics, who is an expert political cartographer and associate editor of Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. Second, we had Nick Cole, and we will let Nick introduce himself here. Hello, Nick. Thank you for coming on to the Global Inquirer podcast. Could you please introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about what you do regarding ranked choice voting? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Andrew. It's great to be here with the Global Inquirer. Big fan. <laughs> um, so I actually, having served as a Naval officer for five years and got, attended the Naval Academy, service has always been a big piece for myself. And so as I was getting out of the Naval service, I was asking, well, what do I do next for the nation? What's kind of the next big problem I want to try and solve? And so I asked myself all these different questions, but I came across a great group um, at the time was called Veterans for Political Innovation, but is now called Veterans for All Voters. And their main focus is on making politics less toxic and a more effective government through open primaries and ranked choice voting as a way to give voters more choice, better representation, and kind of all the things that we'll end up talking about. Um, but kind of discovering it through that group, I uh, realized, okay, this is the next big mission that I need to tackle is ranked choice voting as a way to you know, improve our nation and form a more perfect union. So a good place to start for this episode certainly seems like exploring what ranked choice voting actually means. So can you explain the process for our listeners and detail how it's different from how the U.S. currently runs elections? Right, so RCV is best understood in contrast to our current system of voting, which is the plurality system. Under the plurality system, voters get to vote for just one candidate. Um, pretty straightforward, everybody essentially knows it. You choose your favorite, you fill in one bubble, and the winner of the election is the candidate who receives the greatest share of votes. Of course, 
that can compound into the electoral college, but for individual elections in individual states or districts, that's how the system works. Um, so note that under the current plurality system, the winner does not have to receive majority support to win if there are more than two candidates. Typically, this would manifest itself with a candidate getting just a touch under 50% due to a third party, uh, but this is not necessarily always the case. To illustrate this, consider a hypothetical situation in a hypothetical district with two Republicans running and one Democrat running. Let's assume that this hypothetical district is 66% Republican and 34% Democrat. Given those numbers, you would conclude that the best candidate to represent that district is Republican. However, under the plurality system, if the 66% of Republican voters split their vote evenly between the two options, while the Democrats all vote for their single candidate, then the two Republicans would receive 33% each and the Democrat would receive 34%, which in a plurality system would mean that the Democrat would miraculously be victorious. Um, but this essentially never happens. What you get is the primary system within each party to ensure each party presents one candidate and doesn't split the vote like in that um, seemingly far-fetched example. The problem with this is twofold. First, parties are incentivized to limit choice in a general election, which you know, generally in an economic sense, uh, more choice means more utility and people are happier. Um, so less choice is the opposite. And second, as we've seen, a party or both major parties might select a candidate that is palatable enough to a subset of voters to win a primary election, but then you get multiple candidates who are largely disliked by the electorate as a whole. That's a lot of numbers, but the main point is that under the plurality system, which the vast majority of elections in America use, a candidate in a three-way race could win with just 34% of the vote. Put, another, put it in another way, a candidate can win despite 66% of people wanting someone else, which seems to undermine the entire fundamental concept of majority rule. So this seems like a very interesting sort of situation, but as you said earlier, it does seem to be somewhat hypothetical. So can you give our listeners an example of when something along these lines has actually happened? Right, so there are a few throughout American history, but a very high profile and very recent example of a candidate winning, despite the majority of voters preferring somebody else, is actually the 1992 presidential election. While Bill Clinton did win fair and square with the required electoral college majority, his electoral college victory can be attributed somewhat to the millions of votes siphoned off by the independent candidate Ross Perot. Bill Clinton received just 43% of the popular vote with Republican George Bush receiving 37.4 and Ross Perot receiving 18.9%. Thus, even a president has been elected with the majority of voters actually, well, seemingly, preferring somebody else. Furthermore, this spoiler effect, which Reese sort of alluded to, talking about the party's incentives, um, in which a splintered majority block is defeated by a minority um, or the entrance of a third party candidate, well, because of this, parties are often punished for offering more choices, which, as Reese said again, economically and also just sort of morally doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when we're trying to run a system based on citizens' choice in their government. Thus, this current plurality system poses major problems for the electorate. It subverts majority rule, as has been talked about, and it really creates this toxic party system that a lot of people are not satisfied with. Uh, ranked choice voting resolves both of these problems. As the name implies, rather than having to choose just one candidate, 
RCV allows voters to rank the candidates in order of preference, first, second, third, and so on. Votes that don't help someone's first place candidate go to win, go to their next preferred choices, and when the votes are first counted, the candidate who receives the lower amount, the lowest amount of first place votes is dropped from the race, and the ballot of any person who placed the drop candidate in the first place is shifted to count as a vote for their second best choice in the next round of counting. This process continues until a candidate receives a true majority, as in over 50%, of combined first, second, and so on place votes, which results in what we would call a most acceptable victor. Moreover, as Nick Coe pointed out in his interview, voters' voices are still represented even if their first place candidate doesn't win, and they can still have a say in who becomes their representative. This is how RCV ensures majority rule and accurate representation. Ranked choice voting also allows parties, especially the majority party, to run more than one candidate. Since, for example, Democrats in a majority Democrat jurisdiction would likely rank all of the Democratic choices ahead of all the Republican choices, the Democrats could run multiple candidates without the fear of splitting votes. This would provide a range of choices that may better represent the variety of opinions in a jurisdiction instead of painting a black and white, extremely polarized, flawed representation. Additionally, going back to the example of independent or third-party candidates like Ross Perot in 1992, RCV would finally make it okay to vote for third-party candidates, as people could vote their heart with their first choice while still being able to mark the major, major party candidate they prefer more as second place. Thank you, Leslie. So you've started talking about some benefits of ranked choice voting. Can you point to some others? Right, so what we've talked about so far are just some of the benefits of ranked choice voting found in our research and talked about by both of our guests. Um, there's definitely a lot more to say about RCV. Um, some other advantages, and there are many, are um, for, firstly, ranked choice voting elections can give us more representative and moderate candidates that more aptly match what one of our guests called Americans' gradient of opinions. Moreover, ranked choice voting presents an incentive for candidates and politicians to gain broad appeal and not polarize and demonize. Um, another example of a benefit is that the candidates that result from ranked choice voting by the math are really broadly acceptable rather than polarizing. And another example people point to is that elections run using ranked choice voting generally come about or come across with more friendlier tones, less mudslinging, less aggressive campaigning or negative campaigning and more true campaigning about the merits of policies. And I think it's a great idea to let our guests explain these upsides a little bit more. As opposed to a gradient based on margin of victory, does ranked choice voting in a sense provide some sort of gradient of opinion? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I think that's really one of, you know, I kind of touched on this a little earlier, but no, I think the you know, really one of the big selling points is the system is sort of engineered to, or at least in practice, produce candidates who are you know, basically acceptable to everyone. It's kind of funny because he's definitely fallen out of favor now, but back when he was in office, one person who um, 
most of us po political nerds would say like would be a great ranked choice candidate uh, is Andrew Cuomo in New York because you know, he was a Democrat, but he was moderate. You know, he could get some Republicans. So, you know, he he would be that, that type of a person who, you know, yes, he probably wouldn't be the first choice of very partisan Republicans or Democrats. But you may be there, second or third choice, right? So that would probably be enough to uh, get to a comfortable majority. What would be the impacts or the implications of ranked choice voting being implemented on a wider scale? Yeah, well, I think one of the most powerful things about ranked choice voting is that it changes the incentive structure for our politicians. Mm -hmm. It now has the politicians. Uh, and people who are elected into the office to focus on incentivizing better representation. So what do I mean by this? They don't want to just be people's first choice preference. They also want to be people's second choice preference. And so they're, they're now more focused and incentivized to build coalitions, to band groups of people together, to appeal to as many voters as possible, as opposed to what we currently have, which is incentive, you're incentivized to polarize and to divide mm -hmm. and not build bridges. In the literature, uh, a predominant theme is that ranked choice voting reduces partisanship, reduces polarization, and basically, for lack of a, a better term, and to just be more like colloquial, it makes candidates more friendly to each other and also to all of their voters. Do you, can you speak to any instances of that occurring in races with ranked choice voting? Yeah, definitely. So I, I know of two key instances I can think of. One, in Maine, in the governor's race, I actually saw two candidates campaigning together. They said, hey, if you want to vote on these issues, vote for either myself or my partner Jim over here. Mm -hmm. And then the partner, the partner said the same thing, vice versa. Um, and so now we actually have people focused more on the issues themselves rather than the parties. Uh, in Alaska, um, similar to Mary Pitola, or going back to Mary Pitola, she had actually figured out the beauty, the incentive structure for ranked choice voting. And when, when she was going around to all these different uh, constituents, they said, oh, no, I'm not going to vote for the Democrat because I'm going to vote for the Republican as my first choice preference. And she said, yeah, that's great, but you know, think about what I do for Alaska and consider me as your second preference. And so that's ultimately how she ended up winning is because she appealed to as many people as possible to not just be their first choice preference, but mm -hmm. also their second choice preference um, and reached across the lines and said, hey, even if you're Republican, I'd still love your preference vote. Even if you're a Democrat, I'd still love your preference vote. Mm -hmm. So. Um, exactly, because like you're saying, the incentive structure is no longer to just have the plurality of votes, which is easy to obtain if you knock everybody down. You don't want to criticize your opponents too much because if you upset their supporters, you get their last place vote rather than their second or third place vote, which could be really critical in the end. So you and your guests have hinted that ranked choice voting is kind of gaining traction in the reform community. What is the history behind this reform, and how is it used today? Well, you're right. It has a long history and is used already in a wide variety of jurisdictions. I should first note that there are some states like Georgia who already have runoff elections until a candidate um, gains a true majority, and RCV would just make those elections instant runoff. I know we had this recently, but the problem is then people have to go back to vote and before you even get to the fact that they might have different preferences. It's just annoying for voters. However, regarding places that did not have runoffs and then implemented RCV, 
Our guests have a lot to say in this area, so I'll let them take it away, starting with Mr. Coe's broader explanation and then adding on Mr. Coleman's analysis of where RCV has already had an impact on major elections. Are there any parts of the ranked choice voting um, history, either at home or abroad, that you find particularly interesting or important for listeners to know about? Yeah, well, I think it's super interesting that they've actually been using ranked choice voting for hundreds of years. Uh, I think they first kind of invented the earliest version of it in the 1850s or so, mm -hmm. um, and then Ireland and Australia has adopted it. Um, I think the country of Malta has also adopted it mm -hmm. nationwide. Um, you know, it, it's been pretty interesting. In the United States, we actually adopted it early in New York City uh, for some local races such as school board, uh, but it's really started to take uh, another revitalization here across the United States. It's been adopted in Alaska, it's been adopted mm -hmm. across the entire state of Maine, countless cities and counties across the entire nation. Mm, including Cal Arlington and Virginia for their Democratic primaries most recently, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So Arlington had it this past June primary, which is the first county in the entire state of Virginia. Um, and mm. so um, it's pretty exciting stuff that you know countless places are considering this. Oregon is pretty seriously considering it at the moment, um, as well as Idaho and Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. um, but Utah has like an ungodly amount of cities who have uh, you know, adopted it, which is pretty impressive. What has been the impact of the implementation of ranked choice voting so far? Yeah, it's, it's you know, our focus is store Congress, so I'm going to stick to that some. But yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, it's been sort of a new thing. Um, you know, it's, it's, I would say it was played a big role in the elections um, of at least two members. That would be Jared Golden in Maine um, and sort of on the other end of the country, Mary Peltola in Alaska. Um, interestingly, both of them are Democrats in Trump districts. They're both like the co-chairs of, um, of the Congressional Blue Dog Caucus. You know, ranked choice can be done differently. Like Alaska, you know, they have this interesting system where um, where in the first round, everyone runs on the same ballot. The top four make it to a ranked choice general election. Maine is more traditional in that they have regular primaries. Um, so you know, I would say, you know, it's, you know, really that kind of whole thrust or, you know, one of the, you know, sort of um, selling points of ranked choice voting is that it's supposed to lead to the election of more moderate types of candidates who can sort of appeal to, you know, who are passable to most voters, right? They might not be the first choice. Uh, so I would say, at least in terms of Congress, you have two members who, um, who basically fit that. You know, both these districts could elect conservative, you know, under a more normal type of system, both these districts, Alaska at large and Maine too, but could elect very conservative Republicans, but instead they have more moderate Democrats um, who can sort of work across the aisle. I think that was a big reason Youngkin won, uh, because in 2021, the Republicans did this ranked choice primary, um, and he was able to appeal to enough Republicans where, you know, in a, you know, in maybe a traditional primary in Virginia, that's open to the whole electorate, you know, the whole the whole electorate. Uh, they could have gone with Amanda Chase, and she would have screwed the Republicans in the, the uh, general elections. So, so, 
I would say, you know, it's usually there are Republicans who are against these types of reforms. Um, but, you know, you could say in Virginia, it probably it probably helped them, at least in 2021. Evidently, RCV has an established and growing precedent and doesn't seem confined to just one political party or the other. Right. So in line with what you just said, can you talk more about the partisan layout or situation regarding ranked choice voting? It's hard to believe that anything in the modern American political context can truly be nonpartisan. RCV is not an official platform component of either major party, but it is bipartisan in the sense that both the Republican and Democratic jurisdictions have adopted it. As talked about by our guests, RCV reaches everywhere from Arlington, Virginia to Utah and Alaska to Maine. Nikko and I have did discussed. However, that the GOP at the national level has expressed opposition to RCV. Um, but as you all hear, local GOP jurisdictions, including those here in Virginia, really don't agree with the decision and continue to keep RCV as a toolkit for their Republican organizations. The RNC on the official level, the, on the national level, opposes ranked choice voting. Can you talk a little bit about that, if that presents any hurdles to sections of the GOP that may want to continue using ranked choice voting, like the faction that elected Glenn Youngkin here in Virginia? Yeah, so as I understand it, the Republicans had basically crafted this uh, resolution that incorporated multiple different things. I think it had like 13 other things in addition to ranked choice voting, mm -hmm. things that were pretty awful, like anti-Semitism and all these other ty types of things and they lumped ranked choice voting into there. And so you're not gonna vote against something that, you know, kind of. Yeah, you're not uh, gonna vote against condemning anti-Semitism right. just to save ranked choice voting. Yeah, exactly. So it's like a, a blanket resolution, by the, it's a resolution by the um, Republican National Convention. Right, yeah, so okay. it was pretty far sweeping, um, unfortunately, rather than, you know, very issued focused, um, you know, case by case basis. But as you were saying, the Republicans in Virginia had used it because like we said, people who are independent thinkers want best to represent themselves and. Uh, in Virginia, actually, the Republicans considered uh, a statewide resolution similarly condemning it, um, mm -hmm. but they ultimately didn't vote to condemn it. They, they said, hey, this is a potential tool for us. Why would we take a tool out of our toolkit? So we have a somewhat bipartisan acceptance of ranked choice voting, which is pretty unusual. If this is not that significant of a challenge, then what are the obstacles that ranked choice voting faces? And how do our guests see these obstacles playing out? Mm -hmm. So you can separate the basket of things that opponents of RCV like to talk about into three broad categories. There are the smaller logistical complaints, then there are doubts about how realistic ranked choice voting is, and finally there are some ideological oppositions. Talking about these possible issues with RCV is what occupied the majority of our expert interviews, and thus we want to queue up our guests to discuss each of these categories. Regarding the smaller logistical issues, Nick Coe walks through those from an advocate standpoint. What are some of the common objections that people raise to ranked choice voting, and how would you as an advocate go ahead and contradict those oppositions? Yeah, I've heard a few different things about you know, what people say, which is, you know, it's too confusing, it's gonna cost too much, people can't handle it. Mm -hmm. um, to all of that I say, you know, as, as constituents, 
what is the right thing for us to better represent us? You know, what do we value as voters? We value better representation. We value our voices being really heard. And I think when you think about it from the perspective of what's best for our government, a lot of the things go to the wayside. You know, thankfully, when people say it's too expensive, uh, we found that local areas don't take much to implement it. Really don't. Um, I think Albemarle County specifically allocated forty thousand dollars for education mm-hmm. um, and implementation, um, which is really not much. It's about a dollar twenty-five per constituent. Um, could that affect uh, somebody's sway? Like, could it go a little bit up? Maybe go a little bit down? Totally. But um, at the end of the day, it's really not too much. You know, in terms of a software upgrade and changing ballot printing. Um, when it comes to, you know, how hard is it to implement? Some people have said it's it's a little bit much, but really what we're talking about is most systems already have these built into them. Um, specifically in the city of Charlottesville, we use a system called Heart, which already has it built into it. It's just a functionality it that you already has ranked choice voting built in. It does, yeah. It you know allows you to rank candidates one through five, and you just need to print out the appropriate ballot so that it scans it appropriately, uh, and then counts it. What would you say to people who are hesitant about the perceived, not sure if they're real or not, time constraints on ranked choice voting? And basically, could you answer questions like, is this going to be super different from doing plurality voting? Or are there ways that we can circumvent the time issue? How do you approach that from advocating for ranked choice voting? Yeah, well, from an individual voter's perspective, when you vote, the time difference is not much, other than you have the option to additionally rank other candidates. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to rank everybody, so you don't have to think through every single person. You have the option of ranking additional people if you'd like. Um, it's just another choice that enables voters to have more power. From an implementation standpoint, um, somebody is only elected into the office once all the ballots are collected. So somebody can vote on November 4th, and that ballot might be in the mail, but that ballot still needs to be counted. So um, we won't, uh, in the current election system, even that we have now, uh, results aren't certified until all the ballots are collected appropriately Mm -hmm. and then everything's consolidated. The beauty of ranked choice voting is because of how easy it is to tabulate these things, which is when you end up counting and uh, processing the preferences, it happens in an instant with a computer. And so Mm -hmm. after the ballots are all collected, you process it and the results are immediate. Uh, I think the main concern that I've heard about this is you won't get results on election night. And so mm-hmm. um, election night is typically at best guess for people across Ooh. the entire state of Virginia. And like we said, elections are not formally certified until all the ballots are collected, mm-hmm. which is typically seven days after election night. And so um, some localities are handling them differently on election night, but that's what people could perceive. But in reality, mm-hmm. it's the same thing we've done typically is that election results aren't formally certified until all the ballots are collected. Another common objection is that some people claim that ranked choice voting is too complicated for people to understand. How do you approach that as an advocate? Yeah, well, I usually laugh and say I've had kids be able to do ranked choice voting. You know, we ran a great, <clears throat> excuse me, we ran a great event here in Charlottesville where we had people rank order their cookies. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's as simple as that. You say, what's my favorite cookie? First, second, third. And we've had kids who really were able to vote for what they really wanted in terms of cookies and not feel like they have to play a game with the cookies. <laughs> um, and so it's as simple as, it, it's really just what we do as humans from a day-to-day perspective. When you go to a restaurant and you want to order the lobster, but it's not available, you're going to go to your next preference, which is the steak. Um, mm-hmm. And so to me, it's, it's just as simple as that. You know, It's what you do every day. 
That last idea of RCV being too complicated or too difficult is perhaps the most common complaint that critics level at it, but it really doesn't seem to be the case. Nick Coe points out that ranking preferences is pretty inherent in human nature. Moreover, recent studies like one conducted by the University of Louisiana found that ranked choice voting led to fewer voided ballots and less demographic disparities in ballot errors compared to traditional single mark ballots. In all types of elections, of course, there are bound to be people who mess up filling in the ballot and void it. But the rate for RCV seems to actually be about the same or even lower than traditional ballots. Nonetheless, if ranked choice voting is going to go forward, no one can deny it is um, a big change to the system, to put it lightly. Consequently, both of our guests emphasize the paramount importance of voter education for the future of RCV, as our listeners can hear. Maybe one example that's not directly related to ranked choice is you know, really over the last 15 years, we've really expanded early voting. Uh, we have same-day registration now. And I think the electorate is still, you know, it takes a few cycles for the, these types of changes to really get into the, you know, for the electorate to really get into that habit, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's sort of, it, it, it's going to take time pretty much no matter what, and every system's going to have issues, is I think, kind of what you're getting across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and it's the, uh, you, know, you know, I will say in the Alaska a- a- example, you know, they just basically switched to their, their this like hybrid ranked choice system. Um, and, you know, it's really not the, the at least this Alaska State election site, you know, has this neat video explaining how it works. There's all kind of, uh, you have to educate the electorate of how it works. So it's, you know, it's more than just changing a system, right? Yeah, there's definitely an education aspect to it. But the fact that you have to tell people how to do a new system, the idea that that should detract you from ever changing the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not that it can't be, be, be done, but I mean, it's, um, no, I think there's a way to go about it. In conducting our research, we've sort of found that proponents of ranked choice voting really stress the education component because we have discussed ranking is sort of intuitive, it's not too complicated. However, it is a change, and sometimes change can throw people off, and there's a big push for education. How do you think? proponents of ranked choice voting and also those localities and states that do implement ranked choice voting should go about the education portion of their implementation plan. Yeah, I th- education is absolutely such a key piece and definitely something I've heard regularly, you know, especially having talked to some of these government officials, both at you know, city council or board of supervisors level, as well as from the election officials themselves who will ultimately implement uh, whatever the um, political bodies have decided. Mm-hmm. Education is absolutely paramount. Let me caveat, I'm not an education expert, mm-hmm. but what I will say is that it, it is super important that people understand, one, that from for voting day, it is so simple that you get to rank order preference who you want. You bubble in first choice, second third choice, third choice. Um, and then the biggest piece that you need to explain is why this is so powerful, that the preference voting uh, allows you to better represent yourself. And, and really, it's conveying the strengths of the system and the incentives and why it's so beneficial to people. Um, that is like the most important piece. Regarding whether or not RCV is realistic, 
The main issue lies in the fact that the politicians who would have to implement ranked choice voting are the same politicians who won their office and succeeded under the current system. Essentially, there is some difficulty getting the vote victors of the current game to change the rules. Nevertheless, both our guests expressed at least some optimism at the prospect of wider implementation, as there are ways to pressure politicians and other direct, direct democracy means, such as referendums and ballot initiatives to get RCV on the books. Is the further promotion of ranked choice voting realistic? As in, could we see it in more congressional elections? Could we see it potentially in a presidential election at some point? Yeah, it's it's um, you know it's one of those things where like you hear the the phrase like you know um, the states are supposed to be like the laboratories of the democracy. To to me, it's something like that. I think um, you know I think that. For some people, ranked choice or really anything other than the traditional partisan primary system may be seen as too European. You know, it's uh, this is America. We do you know, first pass the uh, post, um, but it's it's sort of interesting to me. I just just a week before Thanksgiving, Gavin, I was doing a speaking engagement out in Utah. And uh, Utah is, you know, is is about a Republican state as they come. Um, and they passed some law back in 2018 where um, this pilot program where at the state, at some of the municipal levels, uh, they could do ranked choice voting. And Utah, interestingly, as a Republican state, is becoming sort of a hotbed of ranked choice voting. You know, that hasn't really made it to the statewide level yet. Um, but it's it's that sort of caught my attention. I would say it's something that would not it would not surprise me if ranked choice voting caught on in more states. Uh, you know that said, I think you know the electoral college, for good or ill, is here to stay. Obviously, here at the Global Inquirer, we like to be hopeful. We like to believe that change <laughs> is possible. Yeah. It would be pretty dark if we didn't. But well, not a but, but I guess to be more pragmatic, or at least to acknowledge some of the more um, quote-unquote realistic arguments or arguments about the actual potential of ranked choice voting, one of the central objections to ranked choice voting on the pragmatic lines is that unless you're doing a ballot initiative, most of the people in positions of power who are going to make the decisions regarding ranked choice voting's adoption got there under the current system, the current system that benefits partisan lines that benefits partisan loyalty and that benefits a more polarizing politics. So how are we realistically going to get ranked choice voting adopted to a sufficient level that it is effective and we can see its results when so much or so many of the people that are currently in office got here by playing the exact partisan game that we're trying to get rid of? The beauty of it is that you can actually see some of these results already happening in real time, uh, whether it be Mary Patola pulling in this Republican incumbent chief of staff or Maine electing somebody who is, um, I would say, the ultimate mix, which is maybe like a gun-toting person who is uh, pro-abortion. Um, and so you, kind of, you can have these beautiful mixes of people who represent the constituents for what they actually want. Um, but in terms of you know, how do you challenge um, people's 
you know, sense of power or, or the fact that it's challenging somebody's incumbency. Uh, democracy is not an easy thing, and so mm-hmm. we're playing the long game in terms of what's best for voters across the nation. Um, the beauty of the group that I'm part of, Veterans for All Voters, is that we are veterans across the entire nation advocating for this, and we're in this thing for the long haul. We want this as a democracy initiative to improve our democracy, and um, as we've seen across, countless times across this nation, things don't happen overnight. Things happen over the lo- course of a long, slow, drawn-out history. Um, but you know, fortunately, like we said before, this is something that is sweeping across the nation as we speak, um, and people are debating it, discussing it, adopting it at different counties and cities and statewide levels. Um, and so it's actually a, like a pretty exciting time to get involved in politics and see these things happen. When it comes to you know, tackling it from a politician perspective, one thing that people can actually do from a tactical perspective is ask them, hey, what are your stances on ranked choice voting? Um, and then if the incumbent says, oh, I'm against it, well, you can vote in the next person who is for it. Um, and so you can ask these questions at primaries, at general elections, um, when it comes time to vote in who your next representative is. You know, some of these seats are cycled through every two years, some of them every four years. Um, but you just got to keep your eye on the prize and say, you know, how do we get ranked choice voting in? And it's by electing the people who we want to best represent us. Um, and we have to make sure that they're on our team, you know, when we mm-hmm. ultimately vote for that. Finally, there are some who genuinely believe that having a plurality victory is better than the broad preference function of RCV, especially when a candidate who would have won with the plurality ends up falling to second place after ranked choice voting tabulation. Our guest, Mr. Coleman, cited an example of this happening in Maine. However, advocates like Nick Coe would argue that those types of results better represent the people of a jurisdiction, which indeed the basic idea of ranked preferences implies. Here Nick is talking about opposition on the ideological level. What is your response to people who would oppose ranked choice voting because they genuinely would prefer to have a winner with a plurality of first place votes over a candidate with broader support but fewer first place votes than another? Supporters of ranked choice voting can surmount practical and methodological questions and oppositions, but how do you address somebody who just genuinely, fundamentally, on an ideological level would prefer plurality? Yeah, so I think, you know, the beauty of it is there are some people who you just will never convince. Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point, you're not going to argue with every single person. But for people who are, you know, receptive and would generally, genuinely believe that plurality is a better way to vote, um, what I would then argue is, you know, what do you stand for as an American? Do our values align where we want the best democracy, the most representative democracy, the democracy where you as a voter have the most voice? rather than the voice only being heard from an elite few. Um, with ranked choice voting, again, the beauty of it is that nobody is elected into office until they have a majority representation or preference, mm-hmm. and, and that's the real power of this. And so it, it goes back to people's values. Are you somebody who values representation? Are you somebody who values what democracy stands for? Um, or are you somebody who wants to have the narrow, who wants to have control? And you know, these are pretty anti-American ideals when I think about plurality. So, despite resistance from some, ranked choice voting appears like a rather viable option for reforming the basic rules that govern the American political system. It appears to offer the promise of true majority rule, more acceptable candidates, and even more choices for voters. Nevertheless, the strategy for RCV advocates seems to be geared towards the longer term, with proponents in every jurisdiction having to push for it however they see fit. Still, 
there is a lot more to explore on the issue. And as always, the Global Inquirer encourages its listeners to use these episodes as a launching pad to learn more about ranked choice voting and other issues and to develop their own informed opinions. That's our episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Global Inquirer. And thank you to Reese, Andrew, and Leslie for bringing us this story. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider following us on Instagram at UVA Global.